This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So we're in the midst of a series on ethics, on the five precepts, which is a topic that is of really primary importance in the development of our practice. It's not as flashy, it's not as exciting as some other Dhamma topics, but it is so very important and can be a source of great joy. Speech is given particular importance and weight in the Buddhist path, no doubt because wrong speech can be the cause of tremendous harm and right speech can be profoundly beneficial. But perhaps the practice of right speech is given emphasis because it's a very vivid way that we can bring our practice off the cushion and smack dab into the middle of the complex interactions of relationships and relational life. There are four standard components of wrong speech, and those are false speech, which include lies and deception, slander and malicious speech, which is talking with the intention to hurt somebody else, to divide one person from another, or to injure somebody's reputation. The third is harsh speech, which is really speaking with crude language, rude, rough words. Um, Some kind of the force of the communication agitates the mind, disturbs the communication. And the fourth component is what's called frivolous or trivial or wasteful speech. And this is often described as being gossip, hearsay, or just purposeless chatter. In the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses of the Buddha, it says, Because there are these four kinds of verbal misconduct. What for? False speech, divisive speech, harsh speech, and idle chatter. These are the four kinds of verbal misconduct. Bhikkhus, there are these four kinds of verbal good conduct. What for? Truthful speech, non-divisive speech, gentle speech, and judicious speech. These are the four kinds of verbal good conduct. I mean, it's a straightforward little teaching gives us a nice brief little list, but maybe it doesn't actually explain a lot of details. It doesn't give examples. When we look more carefully at the mental states that surround a moment of wrong speech, we find that the four courses of wrong speech are rooted either in greed and delusion or in hatred and delusion. That's pairing up the roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. Because delusion is always present in an unwholesome state. I think it's important when we look at right speech that we remember that lying is not something that only evil people do. Anyone can lie when our minds are affected by delusion and greed or hate. There are lots and lots of examples that we can use, that we can give of lying. When we consider lies that involve the combination of greed and delusion in the mind, often they're not huge lies. 
maybe just little distortions, tiny deceptions, little exaggerations that in one way or another just give a little bit advantage to the self, to our interests, our concerns, or might position us to be more able to get what we want. We see these lies all the time. And in fact, for the most part, we know that most people lie to get what they want in this world, or at least distort the truth a little bit. And so it's almost like we adjust for that when we know somebody's motivation, when we know somebody's, what their interest and their agenda is. We almost adjust, I think, for the distortions that we expect in our culture, in our world. It's very common, for example, for people to lie on a first date. You know, just to exaggerate their virtues a little bit. Maybe even in a job interview. Maybe not what what would be outright false speech, but might be just a little bit deceptive. People want to impress the employer. They want to impress a potential mate. Sometimes people lie just to gain an advantage, to gain an advantage in a business deal that will bring profit. Or they might deny their own past actions if they're confronted with that so that they don't kind of have their reputation hurt. Sometimes we fabricate stories when we meet somebody. Yeah, we did do that, but we make the story sound slightly different than it really occurred, just so that they'll like us more or so that it'll fit in a little bit better with how we want to be seen. These are kind of natural, normal, conditioned social lies. Not big evil things, but nevertheless, they distort the truth. Now, lies that are conditioned by delusion and hatred have a different intention. It's not about gaining one's own advantage. It's about harming another. Perhaps in anger, we speak nasty words. Perhaps we insult a friend or slander a colleague or in some way or another speak harshly, rudely, or falsely in order to hurt. In the Anguttara Nikaya, There's one bhikkhu named Kokalika who disparaged uh, the two chief disciples, uh, Venerable Sariputas and Mogalana. And it seemed that he did not have a happy demise. He actually, like, got the burst out in all kinds of boils and died of a painful disease. And they said, Kama, because he had disparaged Venerable Sariputta and Mogalana. But there's a lovely verse that one of the Brahmas spoke in response to Kokalika's demise. He said, when a person has taken birth, an axe is born inside his mouth, with which the fool cuts himself by uttering wrongful speech. He who praises one deserving blame or blames one deserving praise casts with his mouth an unlucky throw by which he finds no happiness. I mean, we often say somebody has a sharp tongue, right? But I kind of like this image of being born with an axe in one's, you know, in one's mouth. Because sometimes when we speak, we cut ourselves first. It's really an internal process. Whenever we take an action, we have to bear the karmic consequences of it. 
That's basically comma, is that actions have consequences. And so it's really recommended to, throughout our lives, only take the actions that we actually want the consequences of. That's the general rule. If we know it's going to lead to something we don't want to bear, then let's not do it if we can avoid it. And so we, it's worthwhile living in a way that we don't need to then lie to protect ourselves or to protect another. If we find ourselves engaged in a lot of deceptive conversations, we might look at what's going on there. And maybe we need to change the way that we speak or how we speak or who we speak with or the conditions in which we're speaking so that we can bring more honesty and peace into our verbal engagements. There are times when we all decide that what's necessary is to lie. We need to not speak the truth. I think when that happens, we have to do it reluctantly without joy, without glee, so that lying is not something that is done easily. We should first make the effort to minimize any effects that that harmful speech might have. Most of the time, when we breach this precept of wrong speech, it's not really through extreme greed or hate that we're speaking. Most of the time when people breach the precept of false, malicious, or harmful speech, it's usually because of that last characteristic, the one that's of just simply wasteful speech. Because people spend an awful lot of time with kind of trivial prattle, chattering on about stuff that really has nothing to do with the things that we most deeply value and cherish in life. We waste energies sharing hearsay, promoting baseless opinions, complaining about the things that we like or discussing TV characters as though they are real. Sometimes people just talk about their own selves. Ah, me this, me that, I this, I that, me this, me, 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 me. We indulge sometimes in just kind of ordinary but rather useless conversations about fashion or about food or about whatever. It's worth looking at what we talk about when we don't know the person we're talking with when we just meet somebody. Like when you get into a, a taxi cab. What do you talk about? What do you strike up a conversation about? When you get on an airplane and you're sitting next to somebody, what do you talk about? What kinds of things are conversational items for you? What do you share? What do you take the time to share in your social media networks? What do you speak about on the phone with your friends? In the Anguttara Nikaya, another reading, it says, on one occasion after their meal... On returning from their alms round, a number of bhikkhus had assembled in the assembly hall and were sitting together engaging in various kinds of pointless talk. That is, talk about kings, thieves, ministers of state, talk about armies, perils, and wars, talk about food, drink, garments, and beds, talk about garlands and scents, talk about relatives, vehicles, villages, towns, cities, and countries, talk about women and talk about heroes, 
street talk and talk by the well, talk about the departed, miscellaneous talk, speculation about the world and the sea, talk about becoming this or that. It's a little bit of an archaic language, but actually I think this is basically the stuff that you find in most social kind of cocktail party interactions. Recently I was attending a meditation retreat and it was at a personal retreat center and I was walking in the dining room past the kitchen door and the kitchen door was open so the sound from the kitchen conversations and permeated into the, uh, the dining area. And what was the conversation that the staff was having? Was it about a recent Dharma talk that they had heard? Was it about questions about their meditation practice? Was it about some sutta discussion? You know, was it about a visiting guest speaker or was it a work-oriented discussion about some the, the menu plan? No. It was just a conversation about a reality TV show. Now, if this is what people talk about in a retreat center when talking occurs behind, usually it's behind the closed doors, but the doors happen to be opened. It's no better, and for sure it's worse (laughs) in our ordinary city life. At least it seemed out of place there. At least it seemed to be clearly wasteful speech. Often we don't even notice that in our daily lives, what's wasteful speech. I think these kinds of conversations, although they seem innocuous, they're not evil, they're just sort of ordinary wastes of time, I actually think that they are quite unwholesome because they subtly but frequently reinforce identification, conceit, restlessness, and delusion in our minds. We can justify these kinds of ordinary conversations as just harmless social chit-chat, but we have to recognize that when we do that, it's reinforcing delusion. On the path of awakening, do we really have time to waste? Do we really have time to cultivate delusion? There are just so many more beneficial approaches to the act of speech and to the moment of an encounter with another human being. From the Nikaya. Bhikkhus, it is not suitable for you, clansmen who have gone forth from the household life into homelessness out of faith to engage in the various kinds of pointless talk. That is, talk about kings, thieves, ministers of state. And then it goes on exactly the same as I just read from the previous discourse. But then it shifts. And it says, there are, Bhikkhus, ten topics of discussion. What ten? Talk on fewness of desires. So these are the things that he's encouraging them to talk about. Fewness of desires, talk on contentment, on solitude, on not being bound up with others, on arousing energy, on virtuous behavior, on concentration, on wisdom, on liberation, on knowledge and vision of liberation. These are the 10 topics of discussion. We all talk most days in our lives. And most of us spend a lot more time in a day talking than we do meditating. So the repeated patterns of our speech 
are particularly important to observe because they affect not only the quality of our minds, but they affect the quality of our interactions and our relationships. If you think that it doesn't really matter if we lie or bend the truth or exaggerate a little bit, if you think that there's no real harm in using harsh speech sometimes, that it's kind of cool, or that there's really no harm in just this kind of social prattle, social chit-chat, then I think it's important to look closely at that and look at it by after having one of those interactions or one of those conversations, just sit for 10 minutes. You know, if you're out and about, just go sit in your car for five minutes and meditate and look at the quality of your mind. How did those courses of speech affect the quality of your mind? What we'll probably find is that delusion will be running rampant. What we'll probably find is some agitation and restlessness. There are a lot of times... I acknowledge that we bend the truth a bit and sometimes even choose to make a deliberate lie. If you decide to lie, please do so with the full knowledge that there's a karmic consequence to it, that actions have a result. Now, whenever I give a talk like this, somebody always asks Well, what do you mean it's not good to lie? There's times when it's better to lie than to tell the truth. And they say that if you were hiding, the question is always, if you were hiding Helen Keller in Nazi-occupied Europe and the Gestapo came knocking at your door saying, are any Jews here? Would you say, oh yeah, I've got one hiding in in the closet or in the attic. (laughs) Is that skillful or would you lie? Now, of course, lying is the better option because it's much better to accept the karmic consequence of a false speech than the karmic consequence of contributing to a murder. I mean, that's a no-brainer. But do we lie just as a matter of course in our lives or do we lie knowing that there is a karmic consequence to it? Knowing that there's a karmic consequence may not end the delusion in it, but it brings enough knowledge to the situation around the lie that it weakens the delusion in that moment of lying. One of the primary things that we develop in working with all the precepts is the capacity to act with restraint. We learn to act with restraint with the body when we don't kill, when we don't engage in sexual misconduct. And we learn to act with restraint with the speech, with the tongue, with our voice, with verbal action, when we choose to keep the precepts. And very often, we can practice restraint simply by keeping silent. When we know that there's no right speech to be said, then maybe silence is a better option. Maybe that is a really good one. How often, though, do we just engage in a conversation that doesn't go anywhere that we are interested in? 
Well, often we assume that people aren't interested in the things that we're interested in. But do we try? Do we try? Do we practice bringing up issues of the Dhamma? Maybe without the word Dhamma. But maybe just bringing up in conversation the way we perceive suffering and what causes it. The way we perceive identification and attachment. The way we understand perception to operate. Sometimes little things can slip in without sounding like we're proselytizing or telling everybody they should be more mindful. When we're with other meditators, then we might not even need to try very hard because other meditators will probably be grateful if the conversation isn't just about the same old ordinary things we always talk about in the world, but instead focuses on the profound topics of liberation, on wakefulness, on what we were really mindful of today, on the patterns that we saw, see, and understand, on the ways that we're trying to learn to let go. If we're interested, really, really interested and dedicated to awakening, then the whole of our lives, all of our actions, our verbal actions, as well as our meditative actions, must become a part of this path. And so we have to notice What is the quality of the mind when we are engaged in conversation? What is the quality of the mind after that conversation? Do thoughts, do feelings related to that that conversation, do thoughts and feelings that linger after our talk and linger even into the next meditation where we're thinking about what we said or what we should have said or what we wished we had said? We can look to see, is the way that we speak contributing to our mindfulness, our wakefulness, our wisdom, our tranquility, our loving kindness, and our compassion? Or is our speech act contributing to conceit, to kind of flare up agitated thoughts, to self-concern, self-interest, worry, desire, or aversion? The Buddha said in the Anguttara Nikaya, I do not say that everything that has been seen should be spoken about, nor do I say that everything that has been seen should not be spoken about. So just because something happens, just because we know something, just because we have witnessed and experienced something, doesn't mean we should necessarily talk about it. He says then, he goes on to explain in this discourse, that we should choose to speak about things that lead to the increase of wholesome states and the decrease of unwholesome states, and not speak about things that lead to the increase of unwholesome states or the decrease of wholesome states. As we're developing our precepts, we're engaging in a powerful practice that brings our bodily and our verbal actions right square onto the path of practice. There's a ritual, a ceremony that occurs regularly in Asian monasteries where people ask the monks, ask the monastics to give them the precepts. And there's a chanting ceremony then that follows where people basically uh, chant a promise to refrain from killing, to refrain from stealing, and goes through each of the precepts to refrain from false and malicious speech. And that chanting of the precepts is always a moment of tremendous joy 
People love it. It's a moment that just brings such kind of inner cleanliness, like psychological release, letting go, cleanliness. We don't do much chanting in this group, but I do think we do need ways to reflect and we need ways to remind ourselves and supports to purify our conduct. Because even if we've spoken harshly, even if we've spoken maliciously, even if we've wasted time chatting, even if we've done outright false speech, it was in the past. Okay, maybe even it was five minutes ago, but it was in the past. We have to let it go. We have to look at it, learn from it, and let it go. And that means that we can retake the precept again now. Start fresh. Recommit. Recommit to practice restraint. Recommit to bring wisdom and compassion into our verbal actions. We don't need to berate ourselves with guilt and remorse over all the things that we've said that we wished we hadn't have said or didn't say that we wished we had said. We have to learn to let go of the past, to not lose sleep thinking of all the stupid things that we said that day. We simply recognize the errors and then we recommit to practicing right speech and we recommit each and every time we slip. This precept of refraining from wrong speech requires quite a bit of attention, mindfulness, and work. It asks us to pause right in the act of connecting so that there's a bit of reflection before we speak. But it can become a source of tremendous joy when we know that we can trust ourselves in an act of speech. Developing the skill of restraint in speech produces tremendous self-confidence, self-respect. And speaking truth simplifies our life. It takes a lot of the complexity and stress out of relationships because at the very least, we won't have the stress of trying to remember the lies that we've already told. Right speech is every bit as important on the path of awakening as right samadhi, right concentration, and right mindfulness, sati, samasati. Practicing right speech is one of the great ways that we bring wisdom, mindfulness, and compassion off the cushion, integrate it into our daily lives. It can be helpful I think, to have a few simple tools. The first one is just to pause. I mean, how many people had a parent or a teacher when you were young say, think before you speak? I mean, I heard that a lot. Maybe the Buddha is saying something kind of similar. Think before we speak. What is what, how is what we're going to say? How is how we're interacting going to support the path of awakening? But I think there's another list that is a particularly handy and useful list. And it's the list of five qualities of speech that are well-spoken. And I like this because it's a very handy little checklist. 
where precept training tends to emphasize the negative. It tends to um, give us a system for refraining from wrong actions. That's the nature of the precepts. But this little list that I'm about to share and end this talk with offers us a list of five qualities. It's a positive formula. Together, cultivating right speech while refraining from wrong speech is a very powerful practice. So I'll conclude with a brief verse from, the again, the Anguttara Nikaya that lists these five factors. Possessing five factors, speech is well-spoken, not badly spoken. It is blameless and beyond reproach by the wise. What five? It is spoken at the proper time. What is said is true. It is spoken gently. What is said is beneficial, and it is spoken with a mind of loving kindness. Possessing these five factors, speech is well-spoken, not badly spoken. It is blameless and beyond reproach by the wise. Thank you.